Hi everybody, my name is Greg Hancock, and along with my friend and clinically trained empath, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about the dreaded, but often very real, case of having a small sample size, what you should watch out for, and what options you have to squeeze the most information and inferential potential from your precious data. Along the way, we also mention, name that tune, Lawrence Welk, Space Mountain and the Tiki Room, Parapraxis, Extraordinarily Squares, Applebee's, mm-mm-mm, B-Words, Eeyore, the Psychological Science Accelerator, and Yoink. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So I know that you have a counseling background, right? Ostensibly. And you also have a Catholic upbringing, which means you have a certain sense of confession and absolution, right? Yeah. In those capacities, I would like you to imagine a colleague or a student walks into your office and says, I have a really small sample size. What do you think I should do? You're f***ed. And we're out. (laughs) All right. Wait, 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 wait. Maybe, maybe (laughs) I was a little harsh there. This is like when my girls were young, running through the house barefoot. One of them stubbed her toe, ran to my mom crying, Mm -hmm. and my mom brushed her hair out of her eyes and said, well, sweetie, that's why God made shoes. (laughs) So (laughs) that's the stock from which I Uh come. My own grandmother, who didn't say stuff like that, (laughs) we used to watch this show. I don't know if you remember it. It was called Name That Tune. Name That Tune. Oh, yeah. Oh, my own grandmother would watch that, and I would take that in a heartbeat over Lawrence Welk, which was what her favorite show was. Thank you, George. Boys and girls, a fine performance. But yes, I I distinctly remember Name That Tune. Mm -hmm. Like most things that you raise, it does two things simultaneously. It gives me a very fond memory of when I was younger, Mm -hmm. while at the same time thinking... Where the heck are you going with this? So I want to play a game with you, and I don't want to do Name That Tune, but just so that people out there know what Name That Tune was, what would happen is one note would be played from a song, and if either contestant could say what the song was, they'd buzz in, and then the next note, and then the next note, and whoever could buzz in first and name that tune correctly would win. So I want to do that, but not with songs, because then I would just have to listen to you hum Van Halen the whole time. You and I both like movies. Let's do it with movies. I am going to think up a quote from a movie, and I will go ahead and come at it slowly, and you buzz in it as soon as you think you know what the movie is. Oh, dang. Okay. Just as an example, if I said, frankly, do you know what that's going to be? I don't give a damn. Go on with the wind. See, you got that on the first note. That was outstanding. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. All right, so you get this. Are you ready? Start easy. I need to build up calluses. <laughs> okay. You can't handle the truth. There you go. From the movie? Uh, 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 good men. A few good men. Nicely done. You can't handle the truth. All right. So you think you can cough one up here? Oh, I do it to you? Yeah, if you want. That's fair. Okay. Let me think for a moment. Yeah. 
I may not get these exact, so it's in the spirit. <laughs> you better get this one by the second word. Oh, dear God. There's 106. Miles to Chicago, we've got full tank of gas, <laughs> half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. <laughs> yes! The Blues Brothers. 106 miles to Chicago, we got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. All right. <laughs> uh, okay. okay. Are you ready? Yes. I have a very particular set of skills. Oh, son of a... It's Jiffy. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Jiffy said that at the holiday party. I have a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like them. Are you telling me that came out of a movie? <laughs> yes. I didn't. I thought Jiffy said really? that. Oh, wow. I just love that your go-to was that it was Jiffy. That's awesome. It is from the movie Taken, and Liam Neeson says that. What I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. I have not seen that movie. Are you kidding me? You've got homework. All right. You got anything? All right. Your mother was a... Oh, 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 uh, Monty Python. Yes. Your mother was a hamster and your father smells of elderberry, right? <laughs> exactly. Your mother was a hamster, and your father smelt of elderberries. Uh, okay, last one. Last one. Go for it. Life moves... In slow motion. No, you're just making shit up. <laughs> Life moves pretty fast. Oh, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Nice. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. And then it goes, whoa, whoa. <laughs> All right. So far be it from me to ask where you're going with this. All right. So the gist of the game was just like the opening question I had about someone coming into your office having a very small sample size. I thought that would be a fun little game for us to open up a question about what happens when you don't have a whole lot of information. What can you do with it? So if I might be so bold as to turn back to the colleague in my office describing a small sample, yeah. that maybe in retrospect, as my therapist has helped me come to understand, my initial <laughs> reaction was not as supportive as it might otherwise have been. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, the support that I felt like I was giving was not the same support that the individual perceived that they were getting from me. Do you want a therapeutic mulligan? Does it work that way? Nah, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> It's a major therapeutic achievement for me to just recognize that. I'm not going to uh -huh. do anything about it. <laughs> Maybe we should think for context, what are some of the reasons that people might wind up with a small sample to begin with? Because I think there's a whole bunch of reasons that people come to this particular place. Are there any that come to you right off the top of your head? 
I mean, the usual. Mm-hmm. First, a graduate student whose entire research budget is $1.50, mm-hmm. and their mom works for a public school system and knows a woman who knows a woman who can get you into one kindergarten class mm-hmm. for 30 minutes, and you can go in and gather your dissertation data. And so part of it are just limited resources. Mm-hmm. From the kind of work that I do myself, a lot of small N situations come from studying rare behaviors. Right. In clinical psychology, psychopathology is there just aren't a lot of some particular characteristic living in the wild that are easy to get to. Sure. And so having 20 of a particular kind of observation for that area is really quite a large sample. It's not with respect to maximum likelihood, but it might be huge (laughs) with respect to 10-year-olds who are alcoholic, who are binge drinking. And they exist. There are 10-year-olds who are alcoholic, but thank goodness there are not many of them. Yeah. So people who work with rare diseases, of course, or drug-dependent mothers or all of these kinds of things are very, very challenging to get subjects. And that feels quite reasonable, at least from a logistic standpoint, from a cost standpoint, from a human expenditure kind of standpoint, very difficult to get those kinds of subjects. But also, and you alluded to this with the grad student's budget, some of the things that people are trying to study cost a tremendous amount of money. I know you're anti-FMRI. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to level any gross overgeneralizations. But yes, Uh yes, I am anti-FMRI. If we could just somehow return to phrenology and the lie detector test. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, (laughs) Right. But the idea that if someone were foolhardy enough to try to use FMRI, it, it costs a ton of money to be able to get people into that thing. And that automatically limits what you have access to. So I think there are a variety of reasons that people might find themselves reasonably in a situation of having small data. Now, to be clear, I don't really think of this as a single subject issue for right now. That's certainly a small sample size issue, but I think that's going to be a little bit beyond the scope of what we can address here today. I think that's a fascinating topic and maybe good for a conversation on another day. There is some really interesting work being done on using meta-analysis with individual participant data. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, time series-like kinds of things where you have a single individual who you follow over hundreds of time points. Mm -hmm. But that's different, I think, in both function and form to what we're talking about here, which is... We would kind of like to use business as usual, but with a smaller sample size, what are the issues? What are the workarounds? What are the limitations? You know, one of the things that I have trouble with right out of the gate is what do we even mean by small? Small seems to be very contextual. And I think of small in a variety of contexts. And you and I beat to death in, what was it, like episode two or episode one? I don't know. I don't go back and listen. (laughs) So we we certainly have talked quite a bit about sample size with regard to power, and it has come up as a theme at a variety of points over the last however many episodes you're denying that we have done. But there are other reasons that people might consider a sample size small. One is, generally speaking, people have the belief that the more complex a model you are analyzing, the more data you need to be able to estimate that. Might be true, might not be true, might be true sometimes, might not be true other times. So we might think that a sample is pretty small given the complexity of a particular model. 
We might think that it is pretty small with respect to an estimator. I think you mentioned maximum likelihood estimation. There are other estimators, though, so is it small for that? But I think one of the things that you have to wrestle with right out of the gate is representativeness. And when people come to your office, come to my office, and are talking about small sample size, I have to say representativeness of the sample is pretty much never on their radar. That's right. There's some really thoughtful, promising methods that allow us to fit some reasonably complicated models to smaller samples in a way that we might not otherwise be able. But that's only part of the issue. Mm -hmm. Just echoing what you said is if we can have some complicated growth model that somehow we're able to get to fit to 35 people. So great, we can get that to fit and converge and get point estimates and standard errors. But how does that limit external validity? Mm -hmm. So remember, external validity is our ability to generalize findings across person, place, or time. Are those 35 people an adequate sample of some defined population where even if you get a converged model and a standard error that's not three miles wide, Mm -hmm. are you in a place to say, my 35 people give me basis for making a generalization to this whole subpopulation of people who I'm interested in. Yeah, this issue came up a lot here at home when we were watching election results and early returns. And, you know, conversations that I had with my kids, things like, Dad, can they really tell? It says that 1% of the precincts have reported. It sparked some really good conversations about representativeness of the sample and under what circumstances that might be entirely adequate to try and know what the picture is and other circumstances when it's entirely inadequate. When I talk about sample size and I talk about representativeness with my students, there's this little line that I use. Use a small spoon for soup, use a big spoon for stew. The idea that we have with soup or broth, it doesn't take a lot for you to get a sense of what that tastes like. And so a small spoon is good. But with stew, something that's got so much heterogeneity in it, if you want to get a sense of what the flavor of that is like, you need to use a much, much bigger spoon undergirding all of this is going to be the extent to which we have an adequate sample to be able to represent a population. And part of representing a population well is understanding the extent to which it's heterogeneous or homogeneous. When you think about representativeness and when you were thinking about, well, what makes a sample small, it goes back to a concept that you and I have talked a lot about in the past, and it's that advanced statistical topic of fora, mm-hmm. right? Is that's really <laughs> small for a giraffe, that's really mm-hmm. huge for a chipmunk. The fora applies to sample size as well. Mm. So that's really small for a growth model. Well, precisely the same measures in sample might be perfectly reasonable if you're doing a t-test. Also, what's interesting is harking back for the halcyon days of youth when you and I came up through the farm club, (laughs) we were taught about sample size. N. Mm -hmm. Well, what the hell is that, right? Think now Well, is that level one sample size? Is that mean level one sample size or median level one sample size? What's your level two sample size? Mm -hmm. What's your total sample size? How many people do you have in the sample? How many repeated observations does each person give? What's the Mm -hmm. proportion of missing data over time? Does the proportion of missing data vary as a function of treatment and control or biological sex (laughs) or racial group? (laughs) To even think about what is small sample size, Mm -hmm. we have to dig deeper before even running out onto the playing field of even saying, what is the sample size? 
And people still often talk that way in terms of my N is. And <laughs> but, but it's hard even to nail that down, given as designs get more and more complex. All right, we're going to keep in our back pocket that there's the issue of representativeness. We'll also keep in our back pocket something I'd like to touch base on later, which is a couple episodes ago, we talked about outliers. Well, a smaller N is much more susceptible to influential observations. Mm -hmm. If you have one or two aberrant cases, they're going to exert a much greater influence with an N of 10 than an N of 200. Yeah. Let's talk briefly about why statistically do we need a large sample? Mm-hmm. And what are the implications if we don't have that? Okay. So take maximum likelihood, the workhorse of our field. Now, as you alluded to just a little bit ago, there are different estimators. I think we would do well to remember some of those different estimators. I think a lot Mm -hmm. of times we just go with as default maximum likelihood because maximum likelihood is awesome. Mm -hmm. Maximum likelihood is your buddy. All right. So... We can ride that horse a very long way. Mm -hmm. But let's start there, where the derivations of maximum likelihood are derived under asymptotic conditions, so Mm -hmm. under infinite sample sizes. And we get these wonderful characteristics that when these regularity conditions are met, so at an infinite sample size, maximum likelihood is unbiased, it's consistent, and it's efficient. All right, and on another day, we could puzzle through those. It's not important for here. But the punchline is, is you have to have a sufficiently large N for those properties to come online. Mm-hmm. We've talked about when you and I went to Disneyland back in the 70s is you got an E ticket, right? And there was an mm-hmm. A ticket and a B ticket. And those were crap <laughs> tickets. So that was like, lame. They were just, that was so lame. E ticket got you onto Space Mountain, right? And so the maximum likelihood for e-ticket is you meet these criteria and look at what you get when you have a large enough sample size. If you don't have them, well, then the containers on the ship that's in rough seas start sliding around in ways that maybe you don't expect or understand or can predict. The big thing in my eyes is sample test statistics don't follow distributions that we think they do. Mm-hmm. So an asymptotic central chi distribution. You see, Patrick's obsession with Kai Rizdal. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. Has deepened to the point where he now slips up and calls the chi square distribution the chi distribution central chi distribution. We call this phenomenon parapraxis. Very interesting. Very, yeah. Or a Z distribution that when we assume those distributions are coming online, they actually don't. Mm -hmm. And so we start pretending as if they are, looking at test statistics, looking at standard errors, creating critical ratios, looking at Z values, that we think it follows a central chi-square, but it actually doesn't anymore because of the small n. For me, sample size is the e-ticket of estimation. That's Space Mountain. It's not the tiki room. It's not the tiki room. (laughs) Come on, people. (laughs) Country Bear Jamboree? No. (laughs) I really like numbered lists, and how I was taught back in the day is, one, does a model converge? 
So do you have the sample and the measures and the specification where you get a converged solution? It's kind of like one of these steeplechases is the first thing you got to jump over is, did you get a solution? Mm -hmm. The second one, though, and this one causes grief to no end to people, did it converge, but it's not admissible? Are variances positive in the way that they're supposed to? Are correlations less than one in the way that they're supposed to? An admissible solution is, is yes, that is a valid maximum likelihood solution. Mm -hmm. And then if it's admissible, the third thing that we have to jump over is, do we have a sufficient sample size for these properties to come online, these asymptotic properties? So for me, I'm not talking non-convergence or non-admissibility when I think about this, but I'm thinking about those test statistics, those standard errors. Are they trustworthy? Yeah. Can we reference them in the way that we would like to? So when students ask what sample size they need, the reality is that it's completely model dependent. The sample size that you need for a growth model, we would expect to be different. And this is not about power. This is about those properties coming online. Sample size that you need for that type of model might be entirely different from a confirmatory factor model or a measured variable path analysis model. And there have been sample size guidelines that have been articulated. Sort of a standard is five cases per parameter that I've heard many times. And that sounds like such a lovely rule because it's simple and I can memorize it and I can count the number of parameters in my model and I can multiply by five and figure it all out. But it really just doesn't hold in any universal way. So knowing the sample size that you need ahead of time with regard to these properties coming online is just hard to see. It's it's a crystal ball that's very, very murky. We'll come back to it over and over again, but it depends, just as you're saying, mm-hmm. right? A five to one. Okay, so I've seen that. I've also seen two to one. Ooh. I've seen 10 to one. It's not just the number of parameters, but the quality of your model, right? You've done a lot of really good work in this area of just talking about communality and reliability and the impact that it has on a lot of important things in the model. But just picture in your mind's eye some kind of factor model. That factor model is going to be much better behaved if you have higher communality estimates than if you have lower communality estimates. Sometimes you can think about in just a very colloquial way, a factor loading I envision is almost like a tether that holds an item to a latent variable, and the communality reflects the strength of that tether. Is the, the stronger that factor loading is, the stronger a tie there is between the observed item and the unobserved latent variable. Well, you can count up your sample size, and you can count up how many parameters you have, but the sufficiency of that N is also in large part determined by, well, how strong are those tethers? Because the more weakly determined your factor is, those items begin breaking free of the latent variable and floating away. So it's very, very hard to come up with any meaningful kind of guidelines about sample size to parameters or sample size to elements in your covariance matrix because it depends. What you've just started talking about, in a way, is us converting over to what the heck do you do when you have a small sample size. There are a whole bunch of different recommendations for courses of action that you might consider taking, but the one that you just alluded to for me falls under a broad heading of gather more information. That's not the same as gathering data from more people. Of course, that would be number one. If someone said, well, what's your recommendation for people who have small sample sizes? (laughs) Other than you telling them they're (laughs) fucked. 
Um, Tell me you know, that the, the, doesn't have a feel-good quality to it. it. It does, and it sort of frees up your day. Uh, <laughs> but if you're not able to gather more data, which I think is thing one, sometimes gathering more variables can be helpful. And what you're just alluding to for now is one aspect of that. And it feels a bit counterintuitive. Imagine you have a model that's made up of just measured variables, and it can be something that is very multiple regression looking with, you know, a couple of X's and a Y there. You could also have a model where you have a number of indicators of whatever the construct is that X1 is supposed to represent, and a model with a number of indicators of whatever X2 is supposed to represent, and the same thing on the Y side. And a natural intuition might be, oh my gosh, that is so much more complicated the sample size demands are going to be prohibitive. I just jacked up the number of parameters. There are problems coming my way. But in fact, you can actually have increased stability in the solution when you have multiple indicators for a factor. And there was some nice work at the end of the 90s by Herb Marsh and colleagues. I love the title of the paper. It was something like, Is More Ever Too Much? And it was in reference to how many indicators you could have for a factor and whether or not it actually taxes your ability to estimate things properly. And what Marsh and colleagues found was that, in fact, having more indicators stabilized the results, stabilized the factor, give you more stable estimates of the relations that you were looking for in the model. And they got sample sizes, as I recall, down pretty low, like into the 20s. So one avenue sometimes has to do with gathering more information around the variables or constructs that you are interested in. And I think it goes back to your small spoon, large spoon kind of thing, because when you think about sample, really what it is about information. Mm -hmm. So the name that tune kind of thing is the more notes you have, the more information mm -hmm. you have available. And we can think creatively about what are ways that we can increase that information. Mm -hmm. The go-to is, is, oh, we need more people. Okay, yeah, but maybe we could think more creatively about that. It's a rare subpopulation, or you have a dollar fifty, and you're in your mom's kindergarten class. Mm -hmm. Could we get more information on the number of people who we have, whether that be over time or, as you say, getting more items, getting more measures? One thing that I find interesting is getting more people is, in this same spirit, not always helpful if those people are not any meaningfully different than the ones that you already have. Mm -hmm. Think about heterogeneity in your sample, right? One thing about statistics, and this is often misunderstood, I think, but very often variance is good. Individual differences is good. Heterogeneity is good. If we just keep getting people who are exactly the same as the ones we already have, you're going to your Excel table blocking off 10 rows copying and just pasting and saying, ha, mm -hmm. I got 20. Score, I got 30. Oh, outstanding, yeah. I got 40. No, you don't. You still have 10 because you haven't added any heterogeneity to your subsample that you do have. You're just taking bites of potato and not the stew as a whole. All right, we're going to stop that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I thought it worked. I thought it worked. Yeah, I like what you said about gathering more information possibly over time. Absolutely. 
getting covariates is another thing that you can do mm. that can ramp up your ability to detect things. So if you have a very nicely laid out experimental design, getting information about pre-measures, even if you have random samples, the idea that it explains some of the variances shrinks down your error term, you can gain a lot by getting some of those additional measures with respect to power. So there are all kinds of ways. Let's say we have the graduate student with the $1.50 research budget who has 28 kindergartners. If your ship is moving into high seas and those containers are starting to slide around in terms of bias and consistency and efficiency, what are some things we might be able to do to lash those down to at least limit the damage? So we talked about some ways that you can gather more information to try to make the most out of what you have. And I really, really like the way that you described that our goal is really to get more information. And if we're limited in the amount of information we can gather with respect to subjects, maybe there's more information that we can gather with respect to variables. I think that is a really cool way to think about it. But there are other ways, right, that have to do with the estimators that we use. We open the can of worms on maximum likelihood, but typical maximum likelihood is not the only option here. Do you have any recommendations with regard to other things people can do in that way? It depends on the modeling framework you're in. Mm -hmm. Doing a shout out for Dan McNeish, who is at Arizona State, and your fingerprints are on his training. Dan is a remarkable guy. He has a set of papers with various colleagues. Laura Stapleton is involved in that, and there's some other folks who work with him. Mm -hmm. But Dan really has pulled together different perspectives on this. Very briefly, it in part depends on if you're in a multi-level modeling framework or if you're in a structural equation modeling framework. Mm -hmm. In a multi-level modeling framework, we actually have more resources available to us than we do in an SEM, at least currently. And the reason is there are two flavors of maximum likelihood we have in the multi-level model, which is the usual full information maximum likelihood. But then there's one called restricted maximum likelihood. And sometimes I've heard it referred to as residual maximum likelihood, which is handy because the R holds either way. <laughs> and McNeish has a really nice paper that gives a colloquial exploration of what are the differences, why is this important, why does it play out in the end. But a 30,000-foot description is remember way back in undergrad, somebody taught you how to compute the sample variance and you compute the mean of a set of observations, you deviate each observation around the mean, square it and add it up, and then you divide by n to get an average squared deviation. And somebody told you that's actually biased in a sample because you computed the mean based on information that you observed and the mean goes into the calculation of that variance, it's going to cost you a buck. And so you divide by n minus one. Mm -hmm. And that then is unbiased in small samples. That's our sample estimate of the variance. And then somebody hopefully told you at one point, well, as n goes to infinity, n minus 1 goes to n. And so in large samples, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So if you're dividing by 10 versus dividing by 9, it's a huge difference. If you're dividing by 1,000 versus 999, who cares? Mm -hmm. That's the parallel to restricted maximum likelihood and full information maximum likelihood. It's not that simple. But in full information maximum likelihood, the variance components are computed assuming that the fixed effects are known population values. They're taken as given, 
and restrictive maximum likelihood says, ah, come on, guys, these are sample estimates and we need to factor that in. And so not delving too deeply into it, but restrictive maximum likelihood is much better behaved at smaller sample sizes. And here's where it gets tricky, either level one Mm -hmm. or level two or total. And there are all these level one sample sizes change, right? So imagine you have kids in class and number of classrooms. Well, it matters what is the median number of kids you have across the classes in each room, but it also very much matters how many classrooms do you have, mm-hmm. right? This is what I alluded to earlier. You can have a thousand kids, but only 10 classrooms. You actually have a pretty small sample. And then throw another log onto the multi-level fire is you have a thing called Kenward Rogers, K-R, and that does a little bit of a correction for a standard error and then gives you this kind of cool corrected degrees of freedom. Mm -hmm. And if you use restricted maximum likelihood with Kenward Rogers, you're actually in pretty good shape. Until you break it, go to three kids per classroom and five classrooms, and that's not going to work. That's my go-to in the multi-level is to use restricted ML with Kenward Rogers. And can we employ that in other types of scenarios as well? No, you can't. I know it's not fair. That does not exist in the structural equation model. The SEM is built entirely around full information maximum likelihood. Okay. That's a good way to deal with multi-level, especially with the problem of having relatively few level two units specifically. That's the poke in the eye. Yeah. Yeah. Is level one are important? They're always important. Don't forget the kids in the Mm -hmm. classroom, but the poke in the eye are level two units. Well, that's a nice option for folks who have that issue in multi-level data. For the folks who don't have multi-level data, we have other estimators as well. We still have least squares, by the way, whether it's ordinary or unweighted, depending on what you're actually doing. And least squares is not bad, right? So Bolin has a term I love is he wants to call it extraordinary least squares (laughs) because it's freaking magic. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people in the literature who are starting to say, Uh, maybe we should go back and think about this a bit more because there's some really wonderful properties. There are two things that immediately come to mind. One is least squares is non-iterative. So that whole thing with does it converge kind of issue and admissibility, that just doesn't hold for least squares. And related to that, this is the general rule. If you have one observation more than the number of variables in your covariance matrix, in your data file, you can use least squares. Now, you may have no power. Mm-hmm. Your standard errors may be 2.8 miles wide. But if you have nine variables, you only need 10 people in order to make least squares work. It is extraordinary. Yeah, I don't know why it's not more common. I know that Ken has done stuff around two-stage least squares and model-implied instrumental variable models, right? Yep. And there's tremendous potential for that. It kind of rattles the foundations of a lot of the modeling that we're doing, but I think it really ought to rattle those foundations because the foundations are built upon assumptions of large sample size, whatever the heck that is. And that's the funny thing, is people say, oh, don't use OLS because maximum likelihood is asymptotically superior. And you're absolutely right, as long as you have a large N. (laughs) Maximum likelihood is useless if you have a very small N and OLS is over leaning against the trash dumpster smoking a cigarette. (laughs) 
waiting for you to come over and talk to it again because you're too cool to talk uh-huh. to least squares. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the it depends. Mm -hmm. OLS, maybe your only game in town. Even restricted maximum likelihood. I mean, it's not flawless. You can still make that break. But yes, absolutely. I'm a huge fan of least squares, two-stage least squares, generalized least squares. All of these things are promising. But let's say you are doing an SEM, and for reasons we won't go into, restricted maximum likelihood counterparts don't exist within the SEM. (laughs) What would you do with a student or colleague who has a small n and a structural equation model who still wants to try to use that for their particular application? (sighs) Right. I see three options, maybe four. The first is give up and go work at Applebee's. The second... Horrible career decision, (laughs) but the blooming onion there? No, that's Outback. Damn it. (laughs) Applebee's has nothing. (laughs) And I'll send an email real quick to our lawyer to expect that one. We're going to have to say some nice things about Applebee's now. Oh my gosh, the the Southwest salad is amazing. (laughs) All right, so other than that, certainly using different estimators, least squares kinds of things, I think are worth exploring, including a lot of the cool stuff that Ken has done. Another has to do with, and I'm flirting with this, I'm really just sort of throwing it out there, there are penalization kinds Mm. of methods, right? That sort of in that regularization world that is emerging more and more, That is to say, (laughs) we are becoming more aware of its existence that has already been in other places. But the idea of lasso, do you say lasso or lasso? Lasso. Lasso. Well, and you're from Colorado. That was a little stereotyping. (laughs) 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 Methods like lasso and ridge regression and elastic net kinds of things. There are penalties that you can put on. So when you think about least squares, you think about minimizing a sum of squares, obviously, but you can put a penalty term on there that makes the model do certain things for you. So imagine you have a model. We can just think about it as a multiple regression model. Model is trying to minimize the sum of squares, but you might have a number of predictors that are really just hanging out, not doing a whole lot, cluttering up your model, using up information. You can have a penalty term in that regression or in other types of models as well that really starts to downweight the amount of drain that those fairly useless predictors put on your model and allow the predictors that are really doing the work to shine in there. So it penalizes those predictors in that case that aren't doing a whole lot of work. So one option can be to really just craft your estimation so that it is upweighting things that appear to be productive and downweight things that appear to be fairly non-productive within your model. I like that a lot. Some students in our program now are doing some really interesting work on regularization and adaptive regularization, especially in complicated measurement models for identifying differential item functioning and Mm. things like that, where you have a large number of items is it's a nightmare to do item by item diff analysis. And the regularization offers some really interesting insights into that. I'm more of a let's go out back and fix it. 
So what is your opinion about like scaling corrections and things like that? Do you mean some of the corrections by like Kihai Yuan and Peter Bentler, some of the stuff that tries to take your model statistics and your parameter statistics and convert them to other types of distributions? Is that the stuff that you're thinking That's about? That's exactly right. Yeah. Yuan, Bentler, some old school stuff. I mean, goes way back. Swaim and mm-hmm. Bartlett corrections on chi-squares. So the bottom line is, let's say that your model converges and your model is admissible, Mm -hmm. all right? So it's proper in the way that we would think about. If those asymptotic properties of maximum likelihood are not coming online, what typically happens is your test statistics are inflated. And what a lot of simulation studies have shown is that they're really inflated. Yeah. So your test statistics, both for model fit and your parameters are bigger than they should be. Mm-hmm. And they're all the problems we've had with that. We had an episode a while ago on non-normality, and there's the Satora-inspired kinds of corrections that go in and fix those for non-normality. There are parallels to that for small n. Mm-hmm. And so if your test statistics are too large, then you can go in and swat them down so that they either obtain the distribution that you think they do or you move to a different distribution. But yeah, that's what I'm thinking is, you know, go ahead and use ML, right? ML is still your buddy. Mm -hmm. Get those point estimates, get those standard errors, get those test statistics, and then adjust them for what we know to be the deleterious effects of small n. Yeah, so it's one of those things that I really like the idea. And there has been simulation research that shows that under certain conditions, what we usually think of as a model chi-square is better behaved as a model F. And the Z values that we're accustomed to for your parameter estimates under maximum likelihood are better modeled as T values. So I like the idea of these, but I'll tell you what I would really like to see. I would like to see how those hold up against a more least squares based solution. And that's what I don't know. That information might be out there, but my gut tells me that if I can reanalyze things more in a closed form, least squares kind of way that Bolin is talking about, my gut sense is I'm probably going to get things that are more stable. The machinery that underlies a lot of those rescaling kinds of corrections, especially the ones that move our test statistics to different distributions, the machinery under that is formidable. It really, really is. So I, again, like them in principle, but I'd like to see the smackdown battle royale between that and some of the least squares things before I chose. I could not agree more. And for those of you quant curious listeners out there who are wondering about something to work on or a paper or research topic, I think Greg just described a really good one, whether it be a dissertation or a master's or an empirical paper, which is... A lot of recent work has focused on taking maximum likelihood solutions and fixing them. Mm -hmm. And this is taking a step back and saying maximum likelihood doesn't apply here or we do not meet the minimum criteria for these characteristics to even come on board. And so we're not even going to look at that. It's kind of almost a within-between kind of comparison is can we make maximum likelihood better with corrections than without? And it's a very different question to saying, are there other methods entirely Mm -hmm. that are better than any part of ML? Mm -hmm. These limited information, closed-form, non-iterative methods of estimation, I think we need to walk back over to the dumpster where (laughs) Lee Squares is finishing his cigarette and say... 
I owe you an apology. I knew you'd come back. (laughs) All right. So then I'm going to use the B word. Actually, I'm going to use two B words. Okay, hang on. Let me. I need our lawyer. I still have him on the line Uh from Applebee's, but let me. Okay, Uh go ahead. I've got you on speakerphone. I love Applebee's. Oh, my God. In fact, you and I should go to Applebee's next time we're together. What do you think? Applebee's, America's kitchen. (laughs) So the B words that I was going to use, the first one, bootstrapping. And that's about all I'm going to say about that. I don't think that's a panacea for small sample sizes at all. You can't all of a sudden magically make something out of the limited amount of information that you have. So I'm not going to delve into that. In fact, I think it's very, very telling that there's a recent edited volume on small sample size approaches where there's there's no bootstrapping in there <laughs> at all. And what is in there is the other B word, and that is Bayesian approaches to dealing oh, with small sample. you had to go there, uh, didn't you? I know, I know. So you got a reaction to that, don't you? Oh, mostly that Roy pisses me off because he wakes me up. <laughs> it has nothing to do with bass. It's all about Roy Levy. Dude, it's like two in the morning. Oh, you're on Eastern time, aren't you? Oh, my bad. Did I wake you? And your wife? What a shame. My professional recommendation is never use bays because Roy woke me up one time as a joke. <laughs> in payback for when I woke him up. (laughs) All right, so the idea behind Bayesian approaches is that you're going to bring some prior information about aspects of your model. You might have prior beliefs about specific parameters in your model, certain relations, certain effect sizes that you would anticipate. And we had a very nice episode... (laughs) Waking notwithstanding, we had a very nice episode about the role that Bayesian approaches can play in the things that we do. Other than Roy and your deep, deep Roy issues, what do you think about the Bayesian approaches to small sample sizes? I am cautious. And the reason doesn't really have anything to do with the Bayesian approach is I am very enthusiastic about Bayesian techniques and I would be a better quantitative methodologist if I use those more myself, and that's on my wish list to do. Here's my worry. McNeish has some really nice work that shows that if you use a Bayesian approach without sufficiently informative priors, that it's actually worse than frequentists, that you're better off doubling down on good old school maximum likelihood Mm -hmm. than trying to use a Bayes approach with relatively uninformative priors. But here's my worry. I have seen some work where Bayes approach has been used to estimate some very complicated models with very small sample sizes, Mm -hmm. but they use priors that are damn near spikes. Yeah, They are highly informative. And lo and behold, the posterior goes right to what the prior spike was. And so my worry, and maybe a Bayesian would roll their eyes and say, no, we have ways of combating that, and that's cool. But my worry is, is the degree to which you need to feed it prior information swamps the data to the point that you're functionally going to find what your prior distribution was. So that's my worry, and maybe it's an irrational worry, but when I finished some of these papers where very complicated growth models were fit to 20 people, Mm -hmm. I didn't believe them. Well, there are certainly a lot of different ways that Bayesian approaches can be used to deal with this. Another way than what we're talking about right now has to do with penalization kinds of techniques. 
so that you can have a lot more flexibility with regard to the penalty criteria that you use in a Bayesian framework than you would have within a least squares or maximum likelihood framework. So it might be the case that you're not necessarily informing the estimation of your parameters as much. Maybe you're letting the data that you have drive that bus, but you can also have flexibility with regard to different aspects of the estimator. So I think there's potential there, but just generally speaking, I'm cautious about this. You know, the idea that, wow, my five cases aren't going to overtake that very strong belief that I had coming in, shocker. So I think there's room to learn more about the potential for this. So you were partially through a numbered list, but you didn't finish. And as a guy who deeply embraces numbered lists, that is causing me some anxiety right now. So are there other things on your list you have not yet gotten to? Yes. Here are a couple of things on my list. The grilled chicken wonton tacos at Applebee's are amazing, as are the double crunch bone-in wings. Oh my gosh. And the spinach artichoke dip. It's fantastic. All opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts themselves. Yeah, Michael, did you hear that? All right. Is that going to be sufficient evidence where we can't get sued? All right, cool. All right, Greg, Michael says it's fine. Okay, so anyway. So the thing that I wanted to come back to, and, you know, we sort of said almost tongue-in-cheek at the beginning that, well, the solution is go get more data. And we say things like, well, that's just not possible. That's not realistic. I only have access to these subjects. I only can afford these subjects. But there is no I in team. Well, there is me, though. (laughs) There's There's a me in team, yes. There's also meat in team, not unlike the boneless wings. Okay, okay. No? You don't have to do it all yourself. There are ways that you can gather more data in collaboration with other people. And one of those things that we talked about in an earlier episode was integrative data analysis, where you are taking data from this study and that study and another study, and you're trying to put them together in what I think is a very, very clever way that draws on the information from all of them, acknowledges the contextual differences among all of those studies, but really tries to reach some grander validity, I would say, in the conclusions that you can reach. What that means, in part, is that you have to be willing to view your study as part of some larger whole. It maps right onto our prior conversations. You know, my buddy who does meta-analyses and his mindset is any standalone sample is nothing more than a datum that is being contributed to a broader meta sample. Mm -hmm. I agree completely. If you say it takes a village, (laughs) then the episode is over. A lot of some really interesting work on individual participant data meta-analysis, where it's like an integrative data analysis, but based on individual data, there's a lot of really creative work to be done there. And there are multiple wins on it because you're increasing sample size, Mm -hmm. you're extending external validity because of increased heterogeneity, There's more open science kinds of things, building in internal replication to address the replication dilemma, Mm -hmm. lots and lots of advantages. The big thing that I like, Greg, is just your encouraging of thinking creatively. Mm -hmm. All of us have like, oh, poor me. It's like Eeyore as a scientist. It's like, oh, I only have 18 people. Not much of a house. Just right for not much of a donkey. 
quit whining is, yeah, you have 18 people. They're valuable. They're rare. Mm -hmm. And think about creative ways where we can still draw some kind of meaningful generalization from these 18 people that contributes to knowledge in a way that we don't currently have. So my main point to that one is don't be an Eeyore. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Have you heard of something called the Psychological Science Accelerator? I'm going to say yes, Uh because it seems bad if I were to say no. Uh So, yeah, absolutely. For the benefit of listeners, why don't you tell a little bit more about that? No, I just made it up. I was testing you. Oh, son of a bitch! Yeah, I got you. Um, (laughs) No, No, it's absolutely a thing. It's a network of more than 500 labs in over 70 countries. And the idea is that if you have a particular research idea, what you do is you submit that research idea. And if it passes muster with this team, then you get research teams around the world who take that on as a project with an idea that data will be gathered across multiple contexts And then in the end, those data will come together to inform some larger, broader conclusion. So it's a really nice team science kind of mechanism that also feeds beautifully into some of the integrative data analysis stuff that you do. I love that idea, and I am not familiar with that, and I should have been. I think a common theme that comes up a lot in things that we talk about is we spend a lot of time focusing on how do you fix things? You have non-normality. How do you fix it? You have small sample sizes. How do you adjust it? You have poor measurement. How do you correct for that? It's so exciting to think about how can we creatively get out ahead of this so that it's not a problem in the first place. And it's not limiting at all the importance of fixing things, but at the same time of saying, wow, I wonder if there's a way that we could avoid this entirely. I think that's where our day job gets so fun is saying, oh, I know a guy who knows a guy who could get (laughs) five of these subjects where they are. Yeah. That'd be really cool if we get 20 people doing that. Now we're cooking with gas. Absolutely. So what are some walkaway points for you? Well, other than always telling people get more data, get more data, get more data, I think that a lot of the things that we talked about are reactive, right? Not all of them, but a lot of them are reactive. They're corrective. They're things that you do on the back end. And I think that when you know that you're going to be in a small sample size kind of situation, then you have to think about, well, then what do I need to do with those subjects to be able to get, as you said, adequate information? Or what do I need to do with these subjects as I'm designing this particular study so that it will lend itself best to this particular estimator? So I think trying to take some of the ideas that we had and move them up to the front end and say, you know, rather than showing up at Dr. Curran's office and saying, oh, I only have 18 subjects, what do I do? Go into Dr. Curran's office and say, I'm planning a study. I know that I'm only going to have access to about this many subjects. What do you think I should do as I look ahead toward that particular study to try to maximize my inferential capacity from that particular study? Get out ahead of it. Get ahead of the curve in planning for that and think about it in terms of information, right? A lot of what we do is thinking about a set of numerical values that contain information. So just start thinking about 
more people, more items, more time points, more reporters, pooling data, all of that. So that's one walkaway point. Mm -hmm. One walkaway point I have, which is (laughs) you alluded to just a moment ago, is don't be an Eeyore, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Don't whine. I can't do this. I can't. I have a small end. What am I to do? Oh, Oh, no. Oh, me. Oh, my. We have what we have. And if you're studying rare phenomena, then your 18 people might be invaluable. Mm-hmm. Work on saying, well, how can I optimize internal validity and external validity to have some confidence in the extent to which I understand how the variables are related to one another within my sample? That's internal validity. And external validity is what have I learned from this sample that I might be able to generalize across person, place, or time. But also do think about power, right? There are two things that I think are are paramount. Well, let's go three. One is power. And yes, I've groused about power in the past. Not power as a concept, but power that Cohen's 1988D for a standardized difference between two means even remotely applies to a multiple group bivariate (laughs) latent curve model. That's the absurdity of it, Mm -hmm. is one, we still have to think about power. Two, you have to think about representativeness. Even if somehow you can lash those containers down on the deck that are sliding all over the place, is your sample sufficiently large to say, I believe these are meaningfully reflective of the population that I want to study? And then third, holy cow, keep your head up for influential observations. If you have 25 observations, one person can yoink those regression <laughs> lines around in a way that should keep you up at night. Did you say yoink? Yeah, yoink is a a Bart Simpson word that I think actually went into, it was a new word into Merriam-Webster, Y-O-I-N-K, yoink. Yoink, 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 yoink. And then we've talked a lot about the obvious ones of, yes, if you have 20 subjects, as you know, you have a small N. But I got to tell you, is if you're somebody out there on the treadmill saying, This doesn't apply to me. I have 400 subjects in my sample. You bet you do. Unless you have an outcome that has a 2% base rate, and that's your dependent variable. And I got to tell you, buddy, Mm -hmm. you do have 400 subjects, 392 of whom have zeros. (laughs) Yoink. Yoink. (laughs) See? How was that? that Was was that correct? Perfect. That was perfect. Yoink. We're going to have to wrap up here if we're going to make our reservation at Applebee's (laughs) Restaurant, America's Kitchen. It's not fast food. It's Applebee's Food Fast. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Be sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your World War II history podcasts. And please leave us a review. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at QuantitudePod. And please visit our website, quantitudepod.org, for past episodes and other cool stuff. Finally, you can celebrate the impending spring with awesome Quantitude merch at redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to donors choose to support remote access and low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude, the podcast equivalent to a restaurant people only go to when they are too drunk to drive and it's the only option within walking distance. Quantitude has been brought to you by Sigmund Freud, 
who although dead for more than 80 years, is apparently helping Patrick work through his deep-seated psychological issues one disproven defense mechanism at a time. By highly informative priors, working in much the same way as getting exactly what you wanted on your birthday because you ordered it on Amazon yourself. And by the space bar, allowing a wayward clipboard to accidentally unmute yourself during a Zoom meeting so the entire group can hear you use voice recognition to send a text to another member to complain about the meeting. This is most definitely not NPR. NPR.